0: He invited everybody to the class like, hey, you know, having a birthday party, but he didn't want me to go. But I thought I was invited because my friend was invited too. So I like did all these chores and I like held my mom around the house and she just like gave me allowance to like go buy a lava lamp. So I bought this kid a lava lamp and showed up to his birthday party. And what ended up happening, he was surprised when that I was there. And basically the guy was telling me, he's like, wow, like, you know, I didn't invite you and, you know, I want to let you know, like I used to be racist. And I was so young at the time, I was just like, I was racist. And he was like, never mind, man, it's it's all good. I ended up becoming friends with the kid, but it was a pretty big transition.
1: We are back. What is up, Unfound Nation? Your podcast host, Dan Kihanya here. I'm hoping that 2022 is off to a great start and treating you well. We at Founders Unfound took a few months off from the podcast. We reset, recharged, and we're back more excited than ever. Thanks so much for checking out our first episode of this, our third season of Founders Unfound. You just heard Sean Bovell, founder and CEO of Invitica, a company building a marketplace platform that is transforming the reseller economy one product at a time. Sean has an amazing story. Born in the UK, raised in predominantly white communities in Utah and Idaho, before landing in Oakland for his formative years. He's a natural at math and STEM and has been drawn to tech from an early age. He built his first e-commerce company from the ground up, alternately celebrating and struggling with the highs and lows that come with ever-changing rules and technology. But it was through this boot camp of sorts that Sean zeroed in on the key insights that would lead to the creation of Invitica. With funding from 500 startups in comparison to the likes of Alibaba and eBay, it's no wonder he has many investors filling up his inbox these days. Sean has a great story you'll want to listen in. Our episode is sponsored by Afroblocks, the global Pan-African freelance marketplace and collaboration platform. A great resource for devs, designers, and virtual assistants. Check for a link in the show notes. And please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast. We're available anywhere that you listen to podcasts, even YouTube. And if you like what you hear, go ahead and drop us a five-star review on Apple or at podchaser.com. And make sure to tell your friends about us. We appreciate all feedback and every new listener. Now, on with the episode, stay safe and hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to Founders Unfound, spotlighting the best startups you don't know yet. We bring you stories of exceptional founders from underrepresented and underestimated backgrounds. This is the latest episode in our continuing series on founders of African descent. I'm your host, Anki Hanya. Let's get on it. Today we have Sean Bovell, co-founder and CEO of Invitica, a company that is transforming the reseller economy one product at a time. Welcome to the show, Sean. We're super excited to have you on. Thanks for making the time. Thanks, Uh, appreciate uh, you guys having me on.
0: This is my first podcast, just, you know, heads up.
1: (laughs) So getting used to it. You're gonna be great. We're excited to have you on. So just to get started, let's help the listeners understand what is Invitica exactly?
0: What we do at Vidica is we are essentially digitizing the reseller economy. So essentially turning e-commerce into like almost like a stock investment for consumers to even get involved into. So you can basically buy products through our platform and we predict where they'll sell, how much money you'll make. It's almost like investing in stock and we'll ship it off to like a third party marketplace like Amazon or eBay. So it's like really changing the game and it's letting a lot of people, you know, jump right into the, the reseller space.
1: I love it. I, it's a brilliant platform and I want to dive more into exactly what it is and how it works in a bit. But first, let's start with, let's learn a little bit about you, Sean. Where are you from? where did you grow up?
0: I have been all over the place. My mom is from Brooklyn and my dad's from the UK. So my mom met my dad over in England and uh, I was born over in London. I had three siblings at that point. So all of us are born in England. So I grew up there for like a year or so, maybe a couple of years. And then I moved to Utah, Ogden, Utah, lived there for a bit. You know, I was like one of the only black kids out there. So not my city, but you know, my school. Then I moved to Pocatello, Idaho, because my mom needed to go there to go to school. Stayed there for a couple more years. As soon as she got her master's degree, we booked it and moved to Oakland, where I kind of went to finish my middle school, went to high school. So I got to really live in. I wouldn't really say rural America, but I got to live in like a lot of different places and it gave me like a lot of interesting perspectives. So went to Oakland High, went to Laney College here in Oakland and went to San Francisco State and I was majoring in applied math and EE and that was like the start of, well, I would say I was doing a little bit of entrepreneur stuff before between that, but yeah, I've been kind of just dipping my hands in everything I could possibly do over the past couple of years and now it's kind of brought me to building my own startup.
1: That's awesome interesting experiences yeah yeah well i want to explore that a little bit so that's a really interesting journey to go from uk do you remember being in the uk not as a kid or not as a baby
0: but i went back to uh school there for about 6 to 8 months down in sheffield so my family had some like a house out in sheffield so when i moved out back to visit like i just stayed there in like some weird private school i do remember that it was very interesting like when i was in England, everybody was like, oh, it's the American kid. And then when I went back home, everybody was like, oh, it's the British kid. And I'm like, (laughs) it's both true. (laughs) Both true.
1: (laughs) That tension, yeah, I can understand that. I'm curious, though, maybe you can share a little bit about, like, like you said, Utah and Idaho, very different than Oakland. What was that transition like for you to go, I guess you went from Idaho to Oakland, and was it hard? Was it easier because you were maybe less... I'll get into Utah.
0: I mean, living in Utah was relatively peaceful. I think I probably had like one bad interaction, but I was so young that it flew over my head. But when I lived in Idaho, my family was like the only black family in our school in Pocatello. You know, it, it, a couple of things happened, but I would, and my teachers would like say, oh, you, you can't read these Harry Potter books because they're too advanced for you. So I, I was getting blocked from doing that. So I'd have to go during lunch and check out the books and because so i wouldn't be able to check them out during class i'd play with like the all the white kids and at the time i didn't really know what you know being black was like you know i i was playing with the kids and they were like you can't play with us because we're playing world war ii and there were no black people in world war ii and i was like oh okay so i like, left went back home and i was talking to my mom about it because i was confused and you know she was getting her master's at uh ISU, and she had to come back and teach the civil rights movement to every single class at our school. <laughs> and then afterwards, like it was, <laughs> it was very interesting. Like a lot of like the kids I was going to high school or not high school, elementary school with, they were like, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I was like, shoot, I didn't know either. <laughs> so it was different. You know, I think I would say the racist experiences were more in your face. You know, when I was living in Idaho. It wasn't just incidents like that. I've had kids like parents that tell me like, we don't want a black kid at our house, you know, stuff like that. Really? Yeah. My friend even, I mean, who was my friend later, but he invited everybody to the class like, hey, you know, having a birthday party, but he didn't want me to go. But I thought I was invited because my friend was invited too. So I like did all these chores and I like held my mom around the house and she just like gave me allowance to like go buy a lava lamp. So I bought this kid a lava lamp and showed up to his birthday party like anyways. And what ended up happening, he was surprised when I was there. And basically, the guy was telling me, he's like, wow, like, you know, I didn't invite you. And, you know, I want to let you know, like, I I used to be racist. And I was so young at the time, I was just like, I was racist. And he was like, never mind, man, it's it's all good. But I ended up becoming friends with the kid. But it was a pretty big transition because all of the other black people that I had grown up with in Idaho were only there for school. I mean, you didn't really live in Pocatello, Idaho, unless you were going to school there, if you were black, you know. When 9-11 happened, my Indian friend moved into town and they were being racist to him and calling his dad like a terrorist. I'm like, this is not even the same country. <laughs> it was a really weird place. So when I moved to Oakland after my mom got her degree, I landed in deep East Oakland. So it was like the complete opposite interaction than what I had experienced in Idaho. I'm um, not just that, like it was my first time like seeing like really impoverished like, black people. Like, I 'Cause you were there for school, you know what I mean? Like and everybody was like really cl- like tight niche. Like, basically, yeah, it was a big culture shock for me. I think for the first couple of years. I didn't talk a lot because it was a huge culture change. I went from like middle of nowhere Pocatello, Idaho to like deep east Oakland where it's like, you know, shootings and the school that I was going to was just really ghetto and it was it was a mess. So I basically had to kinda of crawl my way out socially when going from like being very introverted, not wanting to talk to people to like having to like, you know, push myself out. But I would say Yeah, it was a journey. You know, by the time I got into high school, I wanted to hang out with different people. So I hung out with like, I said, I'm going to push myself. So I started hanging out with like a lot of Asian kids. I joined like Asian community service clubs, whatever could kind of put me in an uncomfortable position to force me to socialize. That's kind of like what I had to go through to kind of break out.
1: That's a great story. I mean, it was a hard story. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I I think that's something that a lot of folks, particularly non-people of color, don't understand that there isn't sort of this, oh, well, you know, I'm returning home and there's going to be a bunch of people in the Black community and it'll feel, you know, welcoming and warm. And not that it isn't welcoming, but if you haven't experienced that, it's not necessarily organically something you plug into. And, And so that's a really, it's a really interesting perspective because I think some people listening to this might think, oh, wow, that was great. He went to Oakland and then everything was fine.
0: No, no. Yeah. It was a huge culture shock. But I would say, you know, throwing myself in a position of being uncomfortable is like what kind of helped develop like who I am today. Like I was, went from going like being really quiet and, you know, not wanting to talk to people to like saying hey let's go hiking like I had I had to deal with like racism here too was, I was doing Asian people that were being racist to me like their parents would lock up their jewelry before I'd come in the house it was some really crazy stuff like my friends would tell me after like yeah because I'd be waiting at the door and then they'd hold up one sec They'd be just hiding stuff but I was like it's okay Sean just it's a different culture they it's not right but I at least understand because I've lived in other places like I kind of get where the bigotry comes from
1: Yeah, and we're talking a little bit lighthearted about it, but I think it's probably this thing that, you know, we all have to learn, right, as Black folks, like, how can I maneuver this? How can I, can I fight it? Or should I just figure out a way to navigate through it? And I'm sure you've had to sort of process that yourself. Yeah,
0: I think my particular, from my experience, like, you know, I always thought about that lava lamp situation. Like, that kid did not invite me to his party. Like, I, I just showed up with a gift. And, I mean, I'm not saying you have to go out and give gifts to people. But I think by going in and kind of saying, hey, like, I'm not what you think. Like, a lot of people don't want to be that person that have to do that. But it really, like, they're already kind of, like, imagining you a certain way. You know what I mean? Sometimes by just saying, hey, like, I'm not like that, it changes their narrative, not just for you, but, like, towards other other Black people as well. I, mean, I think we all do it to each other in our own ways, but it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more painful with, you know, all the stuff that black people have gone through in, in the country and whatnot. But
1: that's quite a journey. So you get to high school and settling in, finding your way. Did you have a sense that you were a technical person or entrepreneurial? Like what did you think about what you wanted to do when you were in high school?
0: No, not really. So kind of. So I was pretty good at math when I was younger. And so when I got into high school, I actually tested it into an honors STEM program for minorities at Berkeley. See, Berkeley. So every summer we would take classes there. It was hard because like at the time my other friends were like, you know, they're from East Southern they're Black. And when I got into this program, they were just like, oh, you don't want to be there with those losers. You should come with us, get some girls. And so after my first year, I, li- I listened to them. I was like, yeah, you're right. Let me drop out of this honors program that's going to give me a scholarship. You know, I didn't get any girls during high school. It was a complete scam, but and they all got kicked out at some point. So, but it was definitely different. You know, I, I think being in that program, even for a year, it gave me a really strong sense of like wanting to be in the science space. So I went into college kind of knowing what I was gonna do. I said, hey, I'm gonna go into bioengineering. And I went from not having really good grades in high school to like taking calculus my first summer. A lot of my friends, even my Asian friends are like, oh, you can't learn calculus. Like it's too hard for you. And I was like, Mm, I don't think it's that bad. But I went out and I actually, I took cal my first year in college and then I, Got through all the math classes and, you know, it was it's interesting. But I always kept my mind open, though, just because I wanted to, like, learn so many different things. Like, so I put on, like, a video game convention. I had a club with over 70 people in it. We had, like, a community service club. watched like, anime and stuff. Like, I joined student government. I eventually got on, I was, like, on the student government board as a club affairs officer. So, I, like, really got my hands dirty with whatever, you know. I, what People would be like, oh, that's hard to do. And, I, and it wasn't like I was trying to, like, outshine somebody. I was really just trying to seem like, is it? Let me check to see if like I can, can I do this? Somebody was like, oh, I, I had a friend putting on conventions, for example. And he was like, putting on a convention is really hard, you know, just getting the schools to fund you and getting sponsors. And like, I was like, I'm going to wing it. <laughs> and I just put on my own video game convention. We got sponsored by deFry University and like this other company, the school covered, since I was a student government, I got the school to cover like most of the expenses. And we got like 300 people and got featured on the like, East Bay Express. Like if you ever like look look up the the event, you can you'll see it, but. Yeah, I gave out money and everything. And I was like, it was hard, but it wasn't like impossible. And I think building that, that mindset up really helped jump into the startup space.
1: That's a great point. And I was just going to say, it seems like the journey you've been on is this crucible that has led you to this place of being a leader, being somebody who's a risk taker, somebody who wants to try new things and get uncomfortable, which is all part of the entrepreneurial journey. So that makes a lot of sense.
0: Definitely developed a high risk tolerance. I'd say, yeah, all these just dipping your hands into stuff and you're going to make mistakes. I think that's something people are afraid to try to do. And, you know, they're afraid to tell the people that they've made a mistake. But, you know, I feel like they're just part of the journey.
1: It's so true. They are. If the founder journey involved never making mistakes, nobody would start anything, I don't think.
0: <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I've met a lot of founders now that I've been in the space a little bit longer that they just don't want to take that leap and i'm like you guys just, just it's okay just go out and fail like and you'll learn from that failure but yeah you'll you'll still see people not taking the risk that they need to get to where they need to get to i think all the things i've just piled up in life just kind of helped build who i am today and i'm pretty nonchalant i can come off nonchalant but i'm not actually nonchalant like i'm very analytical but because i'm so used to being uncomfortable like when bad things happen I'm just like, well, you know, me freaking out is just going to make it worse. So (laughs) people see that as like, is this guy not care? I'm like, no, 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 no. Trust me, I care. I'm going to stay calm and kind of work through it.
1: Even keel, even keel, uh, not too high, not too low. We're going to find out how that applies to your entrepreneurial life in a moment. But we'll be right back after a short break with Sean Bovell from Invitica.
2: You're a visionary founder building the next big thing. But your ever-growing to-do list is slowing you down. Well, lucky for you, getting things done just got easier. Introducing AfroBlocks. AfroBlocks can connect you with the top freelance talent in all of Africa and they will manage the project for you. We have vetted thousands of software developers, graphic designers, social media managers, and virtual assistants who can help you save time, save money, and build better. Get it done right the first time. Visit Afriblox.com and tell us Dan sent you to get 10% off your first job.
1: So we're back with Sean from Invitica. So Sean, Invitica is not your first entrepreneurial journey, correct?
0: Not including the convention I put on. It's probably my second or third, but I put on the video game convention first. And then I started my own e-commerce company for about like six years that's kind of what span into Invitica. So yeah, Invitica is like my third business venture, but my first venture backed company, so.
1: So tell us a little bit about the e-commerce company and what was it about the core value proposition for Invitica that emerged from that experience and that journey?
0: Back in college, there used to be a company called like College Labor. And what we would they would do is they'd post these jobs up and it'd be anything from like moving to like office work, and I'll tell you, I, I did everything on there. Like I even got to the point where I was taking other people's jobs because it would like flake out on them. And the CEO would call me like, hey, can you like head over to Marin or San Francisco? I'm like, I'll do what I gotta do, man. So I would take everything. And So one of the jobs I had was, I ended up working for an Israeli tech company in downtown SF. And what they were doing is they were paying us to drive around at night and collect parking data. And it was good pay. So I got to hire my friends at the time and they had no management here. They were all in Israel. so. I fired two of my friends who didn't show up or one of them just did a really bad job and the guys were coming out here to raise some money or talk to some investors and they were like yo you fired your friends I was like yeah I mean I gave them a job and they didn't do the job and then they ended up promoting me to managing all of the <laughs> operations as they scaled throughout the U.S. so I got to keep one of my friends and we like I split my pay with them while I focus on school and then You know, he did the hiring and stuff, and I would just do all the the admin business stuff. So it was a really cool experience. The the second job that I got that was really impactful is I was working for a 500 Starbucks mentor before I knew what 500 startups was out of his condo in downtown SF. And I thought, wow, this is like super interesting. What is this guy doing out of his, his condo? And what he was doing is he was shipping stuff to like Amazon and eBay. So he'd ship stuff to like Amazon warehouses, like they're fulfilled by Amazon centers that you know, they have everywhere. And then he would ship directly to customers on eBay. And I would help him with shipping stuff and processing orders. And how did you meet him? Through College Labor, the same website. It was just a bunch of random jobs you'd end up getting. So I ended up working for him directly outside of College Labor for a while. And I saw how much money he was bringing. He was bringing out about 140 grand on Amazon every month in sales. And I was like, you know, maybe in college, I was like, oh, how's this guy doing this? And, you know, he was telling me like, yeah, you know, I, there's this data that you can kind of, like in tools that you can use to figure out what products sell. And I was like, huh? And he was like, I don't have any, he even admitted, he's like, he wasn't really that technical. So he couldn't really get into the specifics, but I was a math and engineering major. So I was like, I think I can decode or deconstruct what's going on here. And so that's what I did. So I, I realized that there was, yeah, there was data on these marketplaces that you can kind of aggregate. And I only had two grand. I saw what he was doing, which was a really janky business practice. He was like basically like kind of lying to brands and saying he wouldn't sell online, and then he would sell online, get kicked off after a while, and then move to the next brand. I started with like two grand, and you know I realized nobody wanted to sell to me. I got the money from my friend. I had literally no money to start my own business venture. We scaled a little bit, and then we ended up getting sued because we accidentally bought from a really bad we bought some products that, that looked like it was a real like from a real manufacturer, but it was from China and it was like some off-brand you know stuff. So we ended up getting sued for that. They took that business down. I also took down the company that took me down, too. I, I reported it a year earlier when I knew something was wrong, so we didn't get sued that hard because I was the one that reported the counterfeit company. Really interesting experience? Yeah, I ended up restarting with one less business partner, less. That one, the first time we did it with three people, again with two grand, and then we scaled it legitimately working with distribution companies. We eventually found some brands that wanted to work with us. And I went from spending two to three K every month, the 45 days to spending about 60 to 80 grand every month. And in 20, I think it was 2018 or 2019, I brought in about a million dollars in sales out of like my basement. I was getting to the point where I was like, okay, what else can I do with this? So I started teaching people for free how to get into e-commerce. You know, I didn't want people to have to go through the same crap that I went through. And through that, You get people start referring people, then they start referring people. And I was doing all this for free. (laughs) I met some guy at Berkeley that was a product person at Macy's. I approached him with like, hey, I think we can use this data to also create a product. I said, let's create this vitamin brand. I found it. I ran the stats on it. We both put our money in. And then we ended up, he designed, he did the design work and helped do the ads we ended up becoming a top 1% product on Amazon. I sold the brand to him. And then I went back to kind of helping people do e-commerce reselling for free until the point where it was just getting out of hand. And I was like, there's way too much of a demand for this. And like I'm not making any money like to even run my business because I'm like, putting all my time into this. So I got together with a friend from college and I said, hey, we should build a platform to help people find products online. Although they don't have to open these brand accounts at these minimums. Like, analyze this data and so we crafted Invitica. he brought in his boss dimitri who was a lot older than us at the time and he came in as cto uh we launched our company as like a wholesale marketplace and then we went out to fundraise and we had no idea what we were doing <laughs> like people were like how much money are you guys bringing in I'm like we're bringing in like a quarter mil a month and then they're just like like in sales on the site and they're just like this is interesting i just don't know the business model i don't know how this thing works so we eventually got into 500 startups through pitching to one of the venture partners. And while I was talking, I was just trying to explain this weird concept of how marketplaces worked without having to like overcomplicate. And then the venture partner at 500 was like, "Hold up, you guys are disrupting the wholesale e-commerce or distribution space." And he pushed the meeting forward. He's like, "If you want an investment from us, like you know, just sign up, sign in." Like, and then he pushed us through to get it get approved. And I was like, "Wow, that was." a lot easier than I expected.
1: So hold on, hold hold on, hold on. There's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, like for the e-commerce business, I mean, to me, that was like this baptism by fire, you know, boot camp, really, right? Where you went through, like, how do you start with modest, you know, startup capital? How do you lever that up by, you know, doing business essentially, the nuances of brands and this idea that, you know, there's copyright, or uh, this infringement aspect, right? So you really got this complete understanding of the marketplace, which really was the, sounds like the foundation for Invitica, which is awesome. I think a lot of people think about, just to a startup, it's about the product or the platform or the technology, and that's important. But if you don't understand the, where the value can be delivered and how you're going to support the marketplace or the market in general, and you have intimate knowledge because you lived it and breathed it and celebrated and, and either celebrated or or suffered with how things went, right? That's a great story. So connect the dots though for us, because a lot of people will listen to this and think, oh yeah, people gloss over like, how do you connect with investors? How do they even find interest in you? How do you show up in front of them? How did you connect with 500?
0: It's actually really hard to get any VC attention. I think one of my biggest complaints, even after getting funding was, you know, they post all this stuff like, we support founders, come reach out to us they barely reply to most emails. So if you're out here with a really crappy pitch deck or nobody knows who you are, there's no interest, the likelihood of you getting a response is like really low. So I was able to only book meetings with two firms while I was first starting, before I got into 500. I ended up working with this fund called 1517 Fund, who actually passed on my deal initially and later recently invested, and 500 startups. And the way that I got in touch with them was during i think when george floyd was murdered all the vcs came out like oh my god we really gotta really gotta help all these black founders out like and they were just like posting up like we got office hours and resources and so you know i <laughs> i mean it was unfortunate but i capitalized on the event and i said hey like you know i'm doing this and i think that's what got me the meeting with clayton Clayton brian over at 500. It was during that time i was in to score a meeting with him it was an interesting process like you know I had applied, I think, to 500 and Y Combinator, and I got declined a bunch of times. So finally, when I got this meeting, you know, it was just me really trying to massage and digest this idea that was working, and I felt like I was onto something. I'm like, hey, I, I have something here, you know. I just need somebody to give me a chance. And unfortunately, I had traction, and when we first started, we didn't have anything really. We didn't have a site up. It was a landing page. Excel, like, uh, like Google Docs, or Google Sheets, and Stripe handling the payment processing. Like you couldn't even log on to the site. It was super early. So 500 took me in. And after you get into 500, you know, and I was one of the few companies that was making revenue and making a lot of revenue. So I got approached by like a lot of really big VC firms like Craft Ventures. Uh, Serena Williams firm reached out to me. iFly, SoftBank, one of their funds reached out. So I got a lot of attention like initially. And my team, besides my two engineers, was like, basically I hired uh, a sales person from somebody I went to high school with. He kind of worked in tech, but he wasn't like really like a techie. He was just like, he just had a job in tech. He wasn't like actually technical or like business development. He was something I just knew. So I hired him and I started just hiring random friends that I knew because I didn't have any connects. I dropped out of college now to do my e-commerce company. So a whole bunch of traction from VCs and customers. And we didn't even again we still didn't even have the site up and then uh when we pitched in demo day in january of 20 i think 2021 we again got a lot more vc interest like we were booked up and you know everybody's like you're gonna raise your raise i'm like oh my god this is my first time raising and the problem was i i couldn't explain the story i explained what i was doing as an entrepreneur but the vision of the company was like was hard and also during that time some of those key hires that I had hired, those are those initial hires, those friends. One of them got a bunch of our customers banned when they first started and they didn't help Yeah, Like we got like at least 20 people banned immediately because of the way that we were doing stuff. And we kind of had to like, de- I, while I was putting out fires where I should have been practicing my pitch and developing the business and costing me a lot of money. I mean, We we probably lost like over a hundred, 200K in customer orders each month because of that. So, after I finally put out the fires, demo day was over. I had burned through most of those meetings. Like I burned through Serena Williams VC firm. Like they were like, "We don't know what you're doing." And I'm like, "Okay." And I had to kind of have like a real realization. You know, I had, I got some um, advice from a founder for the 500 Network, Chris Bennett, over at Wonder School. He gave me some really good feedback on how to fundraise properly and how to go network. He gave me some early introductions, but I had so much going on at the time that like. I couldn't capitalize on it like I wanted to. So I spent the next couple of months basically gutting out the team. I said, okay. I looked at what other people had on their team. Unfortunately, you can't just hire your friends to build a company. It was really tough. So I had to fire some friends, burn some bridges by accident, didn't mean to. And I spent the next six months, six eight months after demo day, redoing my pitch deck, like iteration after iteration. It pitched out to Harlem Capital. They were interested, and you know they they passed on the deal. But I, I leveraged the relationship I was building with Gabby. I think she's a partner now. She helped me out with my pitch deck, and she was like, "Hey, like it's the storytelling." And she gave me like really good insight on what was wrong, and I was able to kind of hone in like all of the, the advice, looking at like everything I've done from the past, all the tech that we were developing, and I created like something really cool that changed the way that we were doing e-commerce completely. It wasn't just about finding products to buy and sell online. Like I was like, at scale, this is almost like investing in stock. Like you're turning these digital products or these consumer products into like a commodity asset class on its own. And if we could predict the risk, get access to the product, give them the best pricing, all that good stuff, we can really change the game. So I re-honed my pitch. And then in December, I went back out to fundraise. But, you know, nobody raises in the winter. So January hit. Uh, I reconnected with 1517 Fund who passed on me. And, you know, they ended up coming in and doing our pre-seed round. And then I closed some more capital with from like a angel syndicate out in DC. We landed our partnership with American Express. We just had so much really cool stuff happen once I finally started to really understand what I was supposed to do. <laughs> and yeah, so it's been a very interesting journey. I've now closed my pre-seed round and you know now we're getting ready to do our seed round in June, May, June, end of May of June. You know, we're redesigning the site, we're simplifying things, automating a lot of things, building, bringing in financing so people don't have to use their own money. It's like a lot of cool stuff that's never like really been done before, like not at the scale.
1: That's great. And that's a story that we hear a lot, right? Which is you struggle, 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 and then something unlocks, right? There's an investor or uh, some signal from the market or a partnership or a traction milestone. And then it seems like you're you go from... A steep uphill climb to kind of cruising a little bit right and so yeah
0: yeah that's kind of how it feels now being able to pay everybody
1: <laughs> well we're going to take another short break and we'll be right back with Sean Bovell from Invitica
2: you're a visionary founder building the next big thing but your ever-growing to-do list is slowing you down well lucky for you getting things done just got easier introducing Afroblocks Afriblocks can connect you with the top freelance talent in all of Africa, and they will manage the project for you. We have vetted thousands of software developers, graphic designers, social media managers, and virtual assistants who can help you save time, save money, and build better. Get it done right the first time. Visit AfriBlocks.com and tell us Dan sent you to get 10% off your first job.
1: So we're back with Sean from Invitica. So Sean, before we dive into other topics, maybe just tell the audience a little bit about like how does Invitica work? Like how do you find resellers? How do they get on the platform? What's the business model?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'll take a quick step back and say how marketplaces kind of work. You know, essentially a marketplace is just, it's a platform that it it stands in the middle between usually a buyer and a seller. eBay started like the first e-commerce or one of, maybe the first, but. It's one of the first e-commerce marketplaces. So a lot of people like, you know, people like me and you to go out and buy and sell. I think they originally started for mom and pop stores, but eventually anybody could buy and sell on eBay. And that was a big thing. So, you know, you could basically resell anything from like potato chips to dog food, and you could be doing it out of your house. Amazon took it a step further and they basically automated a lot of the logistics, customer service, they'll handle the storage of your products. And instead of having 50 million different listings, they've, for each unique item, if we're selling potato chips, like the same Lay's potato chips, they just throw us on the same listing and then they kind of alternate us through. So everybody kind of gets a good chance to sell the product. So what we do is we kind of work on the back end of this reselling e-commerce process. Amazon has basically created the gold standard of what marketplaces are, like they C marketplaces kind of operate as we kind of take a step back and we say, hey, let's disrupt the B2B part of this. So we work directly with a consumer brands. like We'd go directly with Lays, for example. And we say, hey, you know, we want to basically partner with you guys as a distribution company or you know, just whatever type of partnership, exclusive partner. And Lays gives us access to their data, give all their products they have. And so what we do is we basically go in and we have our own algorithm that calculates the risk and opportunity on these marketplaces of which Lay's products sell, where they sell, how much will sell per month, how stable is the pricing, all of that stuff, and then we take all that data and access to the product, and we basically give these resellers who, at this point, if we're making it easy enough for anybody to buy products, and Amazon and these other platforms are making it easy for anybody to sell these products, you know, essentially because a consumer can use Invitica and open up shop easily without having to even talk to Lay's buy directly as our, through our platform as a distributor and, with, and have the insights ahead and data to figure out which products sell and where. And they can just buy it. Well, and then we plug ourselves into Amazon or eBay or whatever, ship your product to the fulfillment center, set up all the pricing, all that. We tell you how much to buy, how long it should take to sell all that stuff. And it basically starts selling for you. Like, um, a lot of our resellers don't have to even, there's not that much management for their account. So you could probably check in once a week, once every two weeks, see how your inventory is going. It's a pretty hands-off process. So we essentially want to make it so anybody can buy and sell. Even in our beta phase, we have somebody's grandma <laughs> buying and selling on Amazon, and she has her own Amazon store. You know, A lot of people don't know that uh, two-thirds of Amazon sales come from retailers, and about 30 to 40% of them are like, reselling products like Lay's chips or whatever. The rest of them are you know, making their own products. So we really want to disrupt this whole space on the back end and you know, let anybody kind of go in and, and buy and sell.
1: And do you take a cut of the transaction?
0: Yeah, yeah, so we work with the brand and we charge the brand a fee for it so the reseller doesn't get hit with anything. Currently, we're not charging a subscription plan. We're just grandfathering whoever signs up and gets on the site right now. But in May, June, we're gonna be charging about $40 to about 300 bucks a month for a subscription. We wanna make it affordable enough to where you know anybody can kinda come and open up shop which for a lot of people who are like looking to invest in like Bitcoin and all these crypto NFT assets that are kind of like really random, you know, you have a lot, something that's a lot more tangible and consistent. So, you know, for those people, you could easily, instead of dumping three grand onto Bitcoin and hoping that it explodes, you can buy some products through Invitica and consistently you know, get sales each month or
1: each week. So if we project into the future and let's say, you know, five years from now or a few years from now, whenever the journey takes you and, or if somebody asks you, was this a success? And you say, yes, what would be the things that would indicate, like, what's going to be the definition for you to say this was successful?
0: I think the way that people like visualize e-commerce right now is it's it's pretty outdated. So it's like, yeah, like people like, Oh, like, you buy, you sell, there's margins, there's ad costs. But what we want to do is we want to build the next wave of e-commerce entrepreneurs Like as the web is developing. So instead of building these like random products that you hope will work, I hope that Invitica creates a standard for leveraging data, actually leveraging data to make smart decisions. So once I start seeing other companies either trying to replicate that or try to come out and either you know, work with us or something like that, and they're like leveraging our insights, I will say that's a success. Like if we can really change the way that, you know, consumers and people who want to get into this, but they're scared or they don't have the resources to get into it, to feel comfortable and empowered, you know, to jump into it. Like, I, I think we won, even if there's other competitors out there that try to replicate us. like I think we've made our statement.
1: I love that. And that's such a powerful way to look at the world, right? Like the legacy of your business, right? Obviously you're building a business, there's economic aspects of how you measure that growth and success, but to have a leave behind that said the world was this way before we were here. And now it's a different way. I love that. I love that aspiration.
0: I have a mentor from Alibaba and he was telling me that, you know, you
1: guys do this
0: right. Alibaba may buy you. And we ended up getting introduced to the first hire over at eBay. The two founders, when they first started, they reached out to a lady named Mary. I think Mary Lou Song. I don't know if her whole name was like that. But she reached out to us and was like, yo, you guys are building something interesting. And this reminds me of like the next eBay project. So now I'm getting like super well connected. And they're like, dude, eBay's going to buy you. Someone's like, dude, Amazon's going to buy you. Someone's like Shopify, Alibaba. And those are great indicators. And so I'm like, wow, it's crazy. Like just a year later, like. After dropping the ball completely, (laughs) you get all these legacy uh, e-commerce people saying like, you're going to get acquired.
1: Go through the valley to get to the top of the mountain.
0: Definitely, 100%.
1: So let's shift gears a little bit. How does the world remind you that you're not just a founder, but you're a Black founder? Positive ways, negative ways?
0: You know, it's a hard one. I've had a mentor at 500 who, he was Asian and his co-founder was Black, but when they would pitch, the VCs would approach him like, hey, well, the CTO was black. They would approach my friend or the, the mentor who was an Asian guy. Like, so how does the software work? How does the stack work? Blah, blah, blah. And it was the black guy who was actually coding everything. And I think, unfortunately, like Silicon Valley, even you know, just the VC space, and there's still a lot of catching up to do. I would even say sometimes even with other black venture capital firms, I think when they see a black founder maybe doing something outside of a... The space, like what they would consider the space, like if a woman made, like I don't know, like a makeup brand, like oh yeah, that sounds about right. But if a guy makes it, you know, they're gonna kind of question, like I don't know, if you have the the qualifications to build this thing. So there's definitely that. I think people doubt whenever you start building something that's outside of what they expect black founders to build. But on the flip side, I think a lot of people are starting to open up to the idea that there are black founders that are like that have really good ideas, and you know we're essentially like sleeping on them like by by ignoring them and they're the ones that have been giving me chances and some of those aren't even black firms they're like even other white firms like yeah this guy may have something here i'm hoping that as time progresses like you know the bias goes away like slowly or hopefully rapidly but definitely hope that the bias goes away it, it is tough even from like I said, just pitching to black vcs like sometimes they won't They'll just, th- it may be the same exact thing. And then I may go and talk to like a white VC firm who may give me that chance because I feel like they can afford to, you know, like I feel like if a black VC has a little skepticism, they're like, if we screw up here, it'll hit us harder, like versus like the white firm may, like, oh, here's a half a million dollars or here's here's $5 million, whatever you need. Like, and they may be able, that's a drop in the bucket maybe for that fund. So they can take that risk. But it's definitely been interesting. I think just trying to gauge it. I have one other black person on the team. Everybody else is like mixed and Asian and white. So it's a different dynamic than what you see with traditional I would say like black VC or black startup companies. Like usually like the other both founders are black or so I have like a pretty weird <laughs> makeup. It almost looks like they put me there to be the black face so I can get some black VC funding. Like I definitely think some people are probably looking like, okay, he's probably not the real CEO of the company.
1: How does that make you feel though? I mean, to know that's what people are thinking, right? I mean, if it was the opposite situation, nobody would have Second thought about it, right? Yeah.
0: I have an advisor that <laughs> because I was having such a hard time raising, but he knew the business was viable because he's done it. So he was like, you should probably just hire a white person to be the face of your company. And that was from like a non, that was not from a non-black person. So it was just like, and it sucks, but it's a very real situation. You know, I, one of my buddies, you know, he's, he's a white guy. I added him to my pitch deck. I, he's not a co-founder, but, you know, he just joined the team kind of, but having a white face on a team where there's like a Russian guy and another black guy and an Asian guy, you know, it adds that level of confidence that I think VCs like to see. I'm hoping it changes, you know, but I understand why Like, I'm upset, but I don't want to let myself being upset derail me from building this company out. Like I have to keep pushing, like regardless if this firm invests in me or not, like I I need to keep building this up.
1: Wow. Thanks for sharing that. That's, uh, this has been an awesome conversation. So one of the last things we like to ask, the proverbial what-if question, basically. So if you could go back in time and give advice to the pre-entrepreneur version of Sean, then you can pick whatever that might have been, what would you tell him? What would you say to do, not to do, to watch out for, to run towards? It's kind of a weird
0: one because those very mistakes helped me avoid those mistakes, those same mistakes moving forward. So I would almost wouldn't want to warn myself. But... If I could you know, jump in my body, you know, take control of that point with the knowledge I know, I would make sure I picked the right team. I think when I first started, I was just so desperate to bring on whoever. And that's what I did. And that was like probably one of the biggest mistakes. I think the second thing, there's probably three things. The second thing is the storytelling. I think really sitting down and figuring out what exactly this company could have been or what couldn't be, it can be, and like what resources are out there, what tech is out there for me to expand or you know attach. That's probably something I would have done if I could go back, spend a little bit more time developing the business concept, And then the last thing would be to, when it comes to pitching, I, I think I went too hard. I got a lot of advice because of our traction. You're like, go raise 5 million at 20 <laughs> and being a first time founder and I'm black, drop out. You know, <laughs> like those things as like your first seed round raise, Looks a little sketch, and I scared off a lot of my those early investors who were really cool that would have invested at a lower valuation. I would go back and essentially start small, build my reputation up in the space, either build my tech stack big enough to where I can justify it to what I'm doing now, or raise less money, do maybe do a pre-seed round, and then do my seed after. Like I Probably the way that I'm doing it now, if I could go back, I would have saved me like a year. <laughs> but who knows? I mean, it was hindsight, you know? <laughs> Just really navigating the space better and and navigating my company better. That's really what it boils down to at the end of the day.
1: Very wise. Very wise indeed. And you're right. Some of the things you have to live through uh, and some you wish somebody would have said, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I got really good advice
0: from, like I said, from Chris Bennett. And because I was getting pushed the other way, it's like, go, go hard, go hard. Just just push your valuation out and people will invest. Chris is like, no, 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 no. Raise a pre-seed at a lower valuation, or and then then do it gradually. You want to build uh, investor confidence. And I was like, hmm, I'm listening to the other guy, the other person. And I went back and I ended up telling Chris. I was like, hey, dude, you're you were right. <laughs> I should I, <laughs> I closed the round in like two or three weeks, like <laughs> at a lower valuation. Should have should have listened to you. But no, I mean it's it's hindsight, and I will probably say like the last thing is. Part of the reason I felt like that was because of the way that the messaging in the spaces, like it almost advocates for people to go out there with like, not put well put together projects, like just like go out with just your idea. We'll invest in founders. We believe in people, not companies. Like they put all this stuff out there, which makes you feel confident that you can go out there with like, without like a properly refined business model or business concept down or even with like your app all the way. So it makes you think like, wow, and this guy just raised with an twenty million dollars with just like a, a napkin idea, like that I may mean, I have revenue and I have like a crappy website, but I could at least raise five, you know, and that's that really messed up my framework and you know, I think got a lot of bad advice. So I would tell other founders just, you know, make sure your stuff is tight niche and you're strategic with your fundraise. It's it's a job. Fundraising is a is a full time job and you know, you need to make sure you understand what exactly these investors are looking for.
1: Great advice. So as we wrap up here, Sean, we always like to leave a call to action to our audience. What are the ways that we can be helpful to you or to Invitica?
0: If you want to become an e-commerce reseller, you know, feel free to sign up. We're not onboarding until summertime, but if you shoot me a message directly, I'll, I could hook you guys up.
1: And if people want to follow what you're doing or reach out to you, is there ways people should reach you or do you have social media handles?
0: Yeah, on Twitter, my handle is conject. That's a math thing. C-O-L-L-A-T-Z, and then conject. I didn't, couldn't put the whole thing for conjecture, but it's C-O-N-J-E-C-T. So you can reach me on Twitter, and then if not, you can reach me through my email, which is Sean at you know, If you have any e-commerce questions, I'm, I'm always down to help out.
1: Awesome. This has been a really great conversation, Sean. We really appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. We'd like to thank our guest, Sean Bovell. And our sponsor, Afroblocks. This podcast was produced by me, Dan Kihanya, with audio editing and production by We Edit Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, or simply go to foundersunfound.com/forward/slash/listen-to. That's listen T O. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn at Founders Unfound. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am Dan Kihanya, and you've been listening to Founders Unfound.